Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word. We are looking at Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8 uh, this morning, and the New Testament reading will be Romans 5, 12 through 21. Hear now God, God's most holy word. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's go now to the New Testament, Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 12. Here the Apostle Paul writes, saying, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following one, many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we begin to consider Genesis 3 verses 6 through 8 today, it would be helpful to remember that this scene is the central scene in the section which runs from Genesis 2-4 through to the end of chapter 3. Uh, The narrative of Genesis is highly structured. At first glance, you might only see a series of of sentences and and paragraphs as you uh, look through the book of of Genesis, But, but upon closer examination, it becomes evident that the entire book of Genesis is very carefully structured. I've already mentioned that the book is divided into ten parts after the prologue of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And each of the ten parts begins with the heading, these are the generations of, or something similar. But it is interesting and also very helpful to recognize that, that structure can be found within each of these ten sections also. The, the entire book is, is very structured, And the structure of the narrative does impact meaning, for it focuses our attention and gives emphasis to certain elements of the text. I'm not sure 
that you would remember this. But as we began to study Genesis 2-4 and following way back in September of 2018, I, I pointed out that Genesis 2-4 through to 3-24 is highly structured. The, the section is divided into seven scenes which form a chiasm. Uh, with scene 1 corresponding to scene 7, and scene 2 corresponding to scene 6, and scene 3 corresponding to scene 5, and then this fourth scene is right at the middle or at the point or at the climax of this chiastic structure. And this structure uh, communicates this message. Here is the central idea. Here is the central uh, scene In this entire narrative, it is scene 4, and that is the scene that we are considering today, Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8. So there's lots to consider in this whole section, Genesis 2, 4, through to the end of chapter 3. But here is the main point, that is what the structure of Genesis communicates to us. It should also be noted, and I think it is very interesting and helpful, that this little section, which is at the heart of the narrative of Genesis 2, 5 through 324 also has a chiastic structure to it. So let's focus our attention now just on Genesis chapter 3 verses 6 through 8 and notice that it also has a chiastic structure. It's marked off by a series of verbs you'll notice. Saw, took, and gave, which all culminate with a statement, and he ate. Here is the chiastic structure of Genesis 3 verses 6 through 8. One, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, two, she took of its fruit and ate, three, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and then four, the the center point of this chiasm, and he ate. So what is the central statement in this entire section that runs from Genesis 2-4 on to the end of chapter 3? It is this very concise, this very little phrase, and he ate. What is described to us here in this central scene is is the fall of Adam into sin. In this uh, little passage, uh, this little phrase, and he ate, it is at the very heart of the narrative, which runs from 2.5 through to 3.24. This is the central scene in the narrative. And it should come as no surprise to us, for the question Will Adam eat or not eat has been on our minds ever since we read the words, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Those were God's words to Adam way back in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. A tree of testing was set before him. Permission was given to Adam. Eat of all the trees. Enjoy them. Two trees were set apart as unique, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of this one, Adam. Do not eat of it. It was a tree of testing. The question was, would he obey? And the central scene of the narrative of Genesis 2, 5 through 3.24, and the central phrase of that scene answers that question with the words, and he ate. Adam fell into sin. The remainder of the chiasm, the the backside of it, if you will, corresponds to what was said to us at the beginning of verse 6 concerning the woman's hope for eating of the tree. 
Uh, We are told that having listened to the voice of the serpent, she began to look at the tree, that is the forbidden tree, differently. All of a sudden, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She therefore took and ate. She gave it to her husband and he ate. Their, Their hopes were therefore high. They had grown convinced that there was no real danger in this tree, but that it would be good for them, just as all of the other trees of the garden were. In fact, this tree would open their eyes and would make them wise, making them as powerful as God. And so the backside of the chiasm, the descending part of it, uh, corresponds to this hope that had been built up in their hearts concerning uh, this tree. It was a false hope, we learn. Adam and Eve were terribly mistaken. The fifth part of this section here says, Then the eyes of both were opened, but it was not as they expected. They expected enlightenment, but instead they experienced shame and guilt. The sixth part of the chiasm says, And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the serpent had convinced them that there was no real danger in the tree, saying, You will not surely die. He convinced them that this tree was, as, was, was harmless, as all of the other trees were. But after eating from it, they found, in fact, that it did bring death. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. What a terribly sad statement this is. The, the man and the woman who once enjoyed communion with God in that garden paradise of God now ran for terror at the sound of his coming. They enjoyed sweet communion with their maker, but now they were terrified by his presence. For now they were in sin and they were deserving of God's just condemnation. So here is an overview of the passage, the structure of it. You see the point of the text, and he ate, begins with the false hopes and concludes with uh, the result of the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Having now provided an overview of this passage, let's consider it piece by piece. In verse 6 we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It was after this that she took of its fruit and ate. And so notice where Eve's fall into sin began. The serpent brought the temptation to her, this we considered last week. But her fall into sin began within her mind and within her heart as she perceived that the forbidden tree was in fact the good and beneficial tree. She saw or perceived or decided within herself that the tree was good for food, etc., etc. And after doing this inwardly, within the mind and within the heart, after doing this, then she ate of its fruit. And so it is with all of our sin. When we sin, we sin from the heart. When we disobey God's word, we do so from a mind that is bent out of shape. When we listen to another voice and go our own way, it is because we have perceived that someone or something else is worthy of our own, of our obedience and of our devotion. Uh, We decided it inwardly before we acted upon it externally is what I am saying. And so Eve's rebellion began within her heart as she saw or perceived or decided within herself that the serpent's way was in fact a better way than God's way. She saw that the tree was good for food. 
In other words, she had come to believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the tree that God forbid them from eating of, was not a danger to her as God had said, but would in fact be for her good as the serpent said. In terms of its danger, it was like all of the other trees of the garden. It too was good for food. Eve perceived that the tree was good for food, and so she was no longer cautious about approaching it. In fact, the tree that was once a terror to her, do you remember, she added to the law of God when speaking to the serpent, uh, it, she had resolved not even to touch that tree before the serpent spoke to her. She wasn't even going to go near to it. She was afraid of it because God said, it is a danger to you. But now, having listened to the voice of the serpent, she perceived and decided within herself that this tree is, in fact, harmless. It, like all the other trees of the garden, is good for food. And more than that, it was now a delight to her eyes, the text says. And so I ask you this question, do you not reason in the same way when you sin? Do you not, first of all, convince yourself that there is really no danger in the thing that God has forbidden? Uh, yes, I know that God has said, for example, be not drunk with wine, but is there really any harm in drinking to the point of drunkenness with my friends so long as it is only occasional and responsively done? Someone might reason this way within themselves. The, the evil one is bringing that temptation. The world is bringing that temptation. And so there uh, the person uh, reasons away the commandment of God saying, it's really not so bad, is it? Or, yes, I know that God has said that the gift of sex is to be reserved for the marriage bond, but really, what is the harm what is the harm? Or, yes, I, I know that God has said to honor the Lord's Day Sabbath and to not forsake the assembly, but certainly my situation is different. And so, brothers and sisters, what I am saying to you is that you sin against God only after you have convinced yourself that God's word may be disregarded. It is possible that you do this without even realizing it, but I'm sure that you have done it. If God's word is in you, if you know God's law, then you must explain it away or you must minimize it or set it to the side somehow so that you might go ahead and disobey it. This is the thing that Eve did. Eve convinced herself that the forbidden tree was in fact good for food and then it became a delight to her eyes. You and I are naturally drawn to that which we perceive to be good and right, and we are naturally repulsed by that which we perceive to be bad or evil. You can see the progression, I'm sure. First, Eve decided within herself that the forbidden tree was in fact good. Then afterwards, the tree that once seemed repulsive to her looked beautiful to her, and she was drawn to it. Lastly, Eve perceived that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so things progressed even further. Not only did the forbidden tree seem harmless and beautiful in appearance to Eve, just like all the other trees of the garden, but it now seemed to her that eating from it would in fact give her wisdom and insight. In other words, Eve had convinced herself that the serpent was right and that God was wrong. Instead of bringing death, as God said, this tree would open her eyes and she would be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3.5, those are the words of temptation from the serpent. I will say it again, our acts of obedience to God and our acts of disobedience against Him begin in the mind and in the heart. Our behavior is, is largely determined by our perception of things. 
We live within God's world, and we are constantly perceiving that world, including ourselves. We are constantly observing the world around us and making judgments concerning what we see. And this thing we perceive to be good, and this evil, this thing we perceive to be right, and this wrong, this thing we perceive to be beautiful, and that ugly, this thing we perceive to be true, and that false, and we decide to do this thing or that based upon those perceptions, those decisions that we have made inwardly, that the resolve of our heart, the belief of our heart, you see, we naturally run towards that which we perceive to be beautiful, and we run away from that which we perceive to be bad. And this is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 6.22. He says these somewhat mysterious words, the eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. What is Jesus saying when when he speaks in this way, what, what is Jesus encouraging when he urges us to have eyes that are healthy so that, so that our whole body might be filled with light and not darkness? Well, he is urging his followers to perceive the world around them aright. God's people ought to interpret the world around them according to God's word. God's law should be so engraven upon our hearts that we love what God loves and hate what God hates. What He calls good and right and true, we should call good and right and true. What He calls evil, we should call evil. And we should believe it to the very heart, you see. This is about perception. How, how do you see the world around you? How do you see yourself? How do you see God? Are you perceiving it correctly? Where did Eve's rebellion begin? It began in the heart and in the mind. She would eventually eat of the forbidden tree, not because her hand and mouth rebelled, but because her eye rebelled. That is where it began. She began to slip in her perception of things. What God called evil, she began to perceive as good. This she did in the mind and the heart. She found herself in agreement with a voice other than the voice of God inwardly. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why sound doctrine is so vital to the Christian life. Oftentimes my sermons are filled with doctrine and sometimes I will say, I know you want practical application, but trust me, brothers and sisters, this is practical. The doctrine itself is practical because what we believe in the mind and in the heart will naturally produce a life of love and obedience towards God, if it is true. The Spirit must work within us too. Yes, we must discipline ourselves. Practical things are good things as well. But we must have sound doctrine within us. We must see the world as God sees it and as he has revealed it to us. This is why developing a biblical and godly worldview is essential if we are to walk before the Lord in holiness. And this is why the apostle says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the apostle saying? You need to be transformed in the mind so that you Agree with God that this is what is good and acceptable and perfect, and not that you and God need to be in sync on that matter. And again, the same apostle says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That is 2 Corinthians 11.3. The apostle himself is saying this is what went wrong with Eve. She was 
deceived by the serpent's cunning, and her thoughts were led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to God. And the apostle is saying, I do not want the same thing to happen to you, fellow Christian. The woman, after coming to see the tree as good, as delightful, and as desirable, then took of its fruit and ate it. The statement is simple enough, isn't it? Uh, Here, the, the sin of Eve is simply described to us. She ate of the forbidden fruit. But I will take the opportunity to ask the question that we should all be asking, where is Adam? Where is he? Where is Adam? Adam was the one commanded by God to guard and keep the garden temple. Eve was given to Adam as his helper. And yet Adam is missing from this narrative. He's nowhere to be found. The snake approaches Eve. The snake speaks to Eve. Eve considers the serpent's words and came to be of his opinion. And then Eve took of the fruit of the tree and ate of it. And where is Adam? He is absent. And so, while we should not minimize the sin of Eve, for she knew the law of God herself, and it's true, she decided to commit the sin, we should also highlight Adam's failure, I think. When Eve ate, she sinned, a sin of commission, having violated the law of God by her action. But when Eve ate, Adam sinned, a sin of omission. He failed to do what God had called him to do by his negligence. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be mindful not only of sins of commission, but also of sins of omission. In other words, not only should we take care not to commit sin, but we should also take care to not fail to do that which God has called us to do in His Word. And I fear that oftentimes we sin in this way. It's not by what we do, but it's by what we fail to do. It's due to our negligence that we sin against God. You can apply this to almost any realm of life, I think. James 4.17 addresses sins of omission by saying, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Notice that Eve's rebellion continues, though. Not only did she come to see that the forbidden tree was the good and desirable tree, and not only did she herself take and eat of it, but she also gave the fruit to Adam so that he might eat of it as well. Eve, instead of standing up to the tempter, became the agent of temptation for Adam. The snake, notice, never spoke to Adam. He spoke to Eve, and then Eve gave the fruit to Adam It was Eve who convinced Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit. Brothers and sisters, we should be mindful of the way that our sin affects those around us, shouldn't we? Most do not like to be alone in their sin, and so they encourage others to sin with them. Most do not drink to drunkenness alone, but they bring others along with them. Sexual sin is always this way. A partner is required. Peter speaks to this in 1 Peter 4.3 and following when he says, For the time... That is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's point is this, those who live in sin love to have company in their sin, and in fact they grow agitated when you do not run with them in their sin. And so we see that Eve here ate of the forbidden fruit, but she was not content to be the only one. She brought the fruit also to Adam and encouraged him to eat. Also, the sins that you commit personally rarely affect only you. We have to keep this in mind. Others are impacted somehow and in some way by your decision to violate God's law. And so, friends, do not rebel against God for your own sake, but also for the sake of others. We love God when we keep His commandments, and we also love one another when we keep God's commandments. Eve, though she was designed by God to function as Adam's helper, actually became a hindrance to him by her rebellion. Eve was deceived, and through her the temptation came also to Adam. And now finally we come to the climax of the passage with these simple words, and he ate, and he ate. Adam was commanded by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he too decided to eat. And I would like to make just a few observations about Adam's eating. First of all, Adam ate being tempted by Eve and not deceived by the serpent. This has already been said, but it should be noted again. And Paul makes this point most clearly in 1 Timothy 2, 13-14, when he says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, so he is noticing the order of creation, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. transgressor. The serpent deceived Eve, and Eve convinced Adam to eat of the forbidden fruit. Secondly, notice that humanity's fall into sin was not complete until Adam ate of the fruit. Adam functioned as a federal head or representative for all humanity. Uh, The Romans 5 passage that we read at the beginning of this sermon makes that abundantly clear when it says, for example, Therefore, just as same sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, etc. When Eve sinned, Eve sinned. But when Adam sinned, all sinned. For Adam was appointed by God to function as a representative for all humanity. Thirdly, it is obvious that God created man, and also the angels, by the way, with free will. That man was created a volitional creature, a creature with the ability to choose, um, was clearly and strongly implied by the fact that God set apart two trees in the garden as unique, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And then Adam was commanded uh, to eat from the one and not from the other. He was to choose the one and not the other. So there, in that Moment, it is strongly implied that this creature, Adam, is a volitional creature. Adam and Eve, both being human, had the ability to to act upon choice. This was one of the things that distinguished them from all of the other animals. Um, I think uh, this can also be said 
concerning the angels. They obviously are volitional creatures also with free will, for by this time in the narrative it has become clear that one of them has rebelled against God. One of them has chosen to go his, his own way. And so angels and men share this in common. They are volitional creatures. They are not creatures of instinct, but they are creatures who have the ability to reason, to think, to, to, to act upon choice. Adam and Eve were created with free will. Our confession is correct and very beautiful, I think, when it says in chapter 9, paragraph 1, that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty, freedom, and power of acting upon choice, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. This is how God created human beings, with the ability to act upon choice. And I think paragraph 2 of that same chapter also pertains to the passage today, for it speaks of the ability that Adam and Eve had prior to the rebellion, when it says man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable, so that he might fall from it. To be human is to have free will. To be human is to have the liberty and power of acting upon choice. When Adam was innocent, he had the ability or the freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but he was unstable so that he might fall from it. After Adam fell from innocency, which is here described to us in our passage today, and into sin, he and all who would descend from him still possessed the liberty and power of acting upon choice. Human beings still have free will. We have the ability to make choices. But hear me now. What we lost at the fall was not the freedom of choice, but the ability to choose that which is right and pleasing to God. That is what we lost. Human beings still have the power to act upon choice, but what we lost in the fall was the ability to do that which is right and pleasing to God. For now we are in sin, in bondage to it, dead in our trespasses, according to the Scriptures. Chapter 9, paragraph 3 of our confession is helpful when it says that man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. This is the state that Adam and Eve fell into. And this is the state into which all are born in this world. All humans have by nature the ability to choose. But now that we are fallen, we are in bondage to sin. Paragraph 4 of that same chapter rightly says that when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, He freeth him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but doth also will that which is evil. What a beautiful statement concerning what it is that God does by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. What does he do except when he regenerates one of the sons and, or daughters of Adam, he gives that individual the ability to once more choose God, to choose that which is good, you see. And so when you came to faith in Christ, brother or sister, you did choose Christ. You chose to believe upon Christ, and you did so freely and from the heart. But how did you do it? 
by the grace of God, by the grace of God and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Corruptions remain within us. We do not always choose the good. And that will continue till the end of our lives or until the Lord returns. Our confession also rightly says in paragraph 1 of that same chapter that this will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of what? In the state of glory. In the state of glory, we will, we will be free to make choices still, but we will be free to only choose that which is good and right. There will not be another fall in eternity. And so what is the common denominator present in each of these states of being that our confession puts forth? A state of innocence, sin, grace, and glory. Uh, the common denominator is that human beings have free will. They possess the liberty and power of acting upon choice. To be human is to have free will. But what changes in each of these states of being? Uh, the thing that changes is man's ability. Adam in innocence was able to obey or to rebel. Adam is in sin is able only to rebel. Adam in grace is able to will and to do that which is spiritually good, yet corruptions remain. And Adam in glory will be made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone. I can't wait for that day. That will be a good day when the Lord makes all things new and establishes us in glory and in our obedience. When Adam ate, he and his wife died. And so too did all of his posterity. Though they went on living for a very long time, they entered into a state of sin and death when they rebelled against their Maker. They fell from innocency and into sin. And the wages of sin is death. This is our condition apart from Christ. We are, though we are alive physically, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the Scriptures say. And if we are to live, then God must make us alive through Christ Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 make all that I have just said concerning man's fall into sin and death abundantly clear. Remember that the backside of this chiasm corresponds to the false hopes that Eve had for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, remember that she thought by eating of the tree she, she and Adam would be made wise. And what was the result of their eating? And indeed, their eyes were opened, but not as they thought. Instead of bringing delight to the man and the woman, they now experienced the shame of their sin. They immediately knew that they were naked, didn't they? A shame was something that neither of them had experienced before. Think of that. Neither of them knew shame. They didn't know what it was like. And now a sense of shame rushed over them for the first time. And what was their response? Uh, their impulse was to cover their shame. Their impulse was to cover their sin and their guilt. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Uh, were the situation not so serious, it would be comical. Wouldn't you agree? Imagine Adam and Eve frantically sewing together coverings for themselves out of, out of little leaves, you know. And this is what we do with our sin often. Instead of confessing it to God and to one another, we are, con we are tempted to, to conceal it, to hide it. But what does God's Word say? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. And not only did Adam and Eve conceal their sin, 
Uh, And not only do we conceal our sin, a sinful man also seeks to provide his own remedy for his sin. And here is the difference between true and false religion, brothers and sisters. True religion has God and His Word as its authority, and true religion looks to God and to God alone and places all of its hope in Him. But false religion has the wisdom of man as its source, and false religion sets its hope upon the things of this world, things that are man-made. And so notice that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and having sinned against God, they hid. And while they hid, they frantically worked to provide atonement and covering for their own sins. But as we will see, they could not. These fig leaves would not prove adequate. They would prove to be terribly inadequate as the narrative progresses. Eve had hoped that the forbidden tree would be harmless, good for food like all of the other trees of the garden. But what did she find? Both Adam and Eve found that the tree brought death, just as God said that it would. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want you to notice just a few things about this verse. First of all, notice that God is here called the Lord God. Uh, This name for God, which in the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim, emphasizes that God is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the God who is near to and intimate with His people. That is what that name communicates. God has been called by this name throughout Genesis 2 and 3. He has consistently been called Yahweh Elohim. He is the Lord God. And I failed to mention it last week, but it should be noted that when the serpent spoke to Eve and brought the temptation to her, He did not call God the Lord God, but He called Him only God. He did not refer to Him as Yahweh Elohim, but only Elohim. What was the serpent doing, therefore, uh, by this choice? He was trying to give Eve the impression that God was, in fact, distant from her, that He was far off, a powerful God, yes, but, but not concerned with her. At the very least, He did not want to remind her of, of His covenant faithfulness, and so The serpent would not utter the name Yahweh, but only Elohim. But notice that God is here again called the Lord God in this passage. He is still the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, but notice now the covenant has been broken. He is still the God who is near and intimate with His people, but now His people are in sin. Secondly, notice that the Lord God had a habit of walking with Adam and Eve in the garden Adam and Eve evidently had enjoyed the presence of God in that garden paradise prior to their sin. And this corresponds to all that has been said in previous sermons about the garden being a temple. It wasn't just a garden, friends, but it was a temple where Adam, the high priest, labored and enjoyed the presence of God Almighty. The garden is where Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence, and that is what makes a temple a temple, God's presence with His people, God communing with His people, His people worshiping Him, and God blessing His people with His presence. But thirdly, notice that God's presence was no longer a comfort and joy to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Now, God's presence, which was once such a pleasant thing, it was a terror to them. 
Again, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What a pleasant thing, right? But now that Adam and Eve are in sin, what did they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They were terrified. They were terrified, not because something changed within God, but because something changed within them. Now, instead of being beloved children of God, they were children of wrath because of their rebellion. This passage should cause sinful men to weep and to tremble. What a terrible and heinous thing it is for creatures to rebel against their Creator, a Creator who is nothing but good and generous and kind. And what a sad thought that the relationship that was once a joy to man has become a terror to him. So to think of Adam and Eve running and hiding from the sound of the Lord God and from His presence should cause our hearts to ache. We should also see how far we have fallen. We were made to live for God's glory and to enjoy Him forever, but we have fallen short of the glory of God and are now by nature children of wrath. This is true for all the children of Adam who are still in their sins. Friends, this is all bad news, isn't it? Uh, But rest assured, good news is coming. Soon we will see that the Lord God is gracious. He will graciously clothe Adam and Eve, and He will also pronounce good news to them that a Savior would be provided. This is Christ Jesus our Lord. He is that Savior. And so let us look to Him, brothers and sisters, friends. Let us look to Him, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank You for this narrative. We thank You for Your Word which speaks truth to us. Father, help us to see that indeed what Your Word says is true, that all of humanity stands now guilty before You and is in great need because of Adam's sin When Adam sinned, all sinned, and because of our own personal sin. Uh, Father, help us to realize that your presence uh, before sinful man is not a pleasant thing, but a terror. You will come, uh, Christ will return to judge uh, the living and dead on the last day, and if we are in our sins, we will not stand. So, Father, for those who are not in Christ Jesus, I pray that they would feel the burden of that that they would feel the weight of their sin and know that they stand guilty before you. But may they also be comforted with the gospel that you, God, being gracious and kind and merciful to your, to your creation, to your, to your people, have provided a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. May we be found in Him. May we be found trusting in Him and Him alone, clothed with His righteousness, standing and upheld by His life. We thank you for Christ Jesus, crucified and risen, and all the benefits that we have in him. Help us to believe upon him now and forever. It's the name of Christ we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.